We are back in Nehemiah this morning, so I'm reading from chapter 5. You can also follow along in your own Bible, or also texts are behind me as well on the screen. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and discharges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what are you doing? What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentiles' enemies? And my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of Ushri stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses. And also the Ushri you are charging them, the hundred part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out his house and possession every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took the 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nation. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. 
and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on those people. Remember with me, with favor of my God, for all I have done for these people. This is God's word. Thanks, Eric. Get this out of the way there. Appreciate you reading that. I know when we do these longer sections, it uh, it's a, it's a lot of reading and a lot of content, a lot of material, and uh, so appreciate you hang, hanging in there and following along uh, for sure. Uh, obviously, new microphone. We'll figure out how that how that works and, and whatnot too. Last week, when Drew was preaching and I was watching from home. It's always a different experience. It's a good one to have as well. He did such a great job. And then also the, the microphone that was in front of him kind of was perfectly in line with his, the shape of his body some of the time as well. So I thought, we need to get rid of that microphone so somebody who's watching doesn't get focused on, on that. Now, Drew is so compelling, I never thought twice about it because was, he, was, he was very engaging. And I, I mean that. He did a great job, and I'm super grateful for it. Um, and we look at the book of Nehemiah, and we're calling this Leadership Lessons for Everyone. In a sense, that could be really the topic of the entire series, because Nehemiah is a fantastic leader, and, uh, and he's on a different kind of scale. Now, the reality is, every single person here who can hear my voice or understands what I'm saying is a leader in some capacity. Everybody has influence or a certain measure of power over somebody else. It could be the kind of leadership that maybe you're the person that people are watching for what not to do, and they're learning about how to be, a, you know, not a good leader by watching you. <clears throat> you're still leading in some sort of way, uh, and obviously there's a tremendous scale for this. Nehemiah is on a scale of leadership that is is just in- incredible. So well before six. Sigma certification ever existed. If you've heard of that, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you're with me. I heard somebody else talking about it as well. Apparently, it's just, you know, high leadership skills and maximizing efficiency. And before any of those programs existed, Nehemiah just had the raw qualities of a leader. And he gathered these people together, even though he was in exile coming back. And we saw in chapter 3, he's got over 40 different sets of people working on different sets of the wall. And then we hear the discouragement coming from outside, and now it starts coming from the inside. And he navigates in remarkable ways through this entire process as a leader. And so on some scale, certainly the principles that we see in him can be applied to you no matter where you are. That's, that seems to be part of why God has given us this as well, is to learn how to use the influence and power that we have over others for the good of the kingdom, for God's glory, and not for our own benefit or gain. And the larger story of being in God's kingdom is related to your stewardship of that influence and power. How are using you the influence and power that you have? Are you aware of it? And how are you using it? And how are you being shaped in the way you use it by what God is calling you to do? That seems to be what Nehemiah as a whole 
is, is about, and certainly here in chapter 5 as well. And by the way, I think that's why stories like the Southern Baptist Convention thing that I was mentioning earlier hit so hard, is when you see abuses of that, it's, it's awful. And then when you see it leveraged by people who are supposed to be representatives of God and his kingdom, it hits even harder. And frankly, that's what Nehemiah gets angry about, as we'll see in a little bit too. The people who are supposed to be the leaders are doing things that they, they shouldn't be doing. And that's wrong. Nehemiah was the kind of person to call it out. He had amazing authority, by the way. In this passage, as Eric was reading it, he says, hey, guys, that's wrong. Stop doing it. And they're like, well, okay. Well, we'll give up money and influence and power. It sounds good. I mean, that, that guy had some serious authority for sure. But part of the reason he had that authority is not only because, uh, because of his grasp of how to communicate these things of what's right and wrong, but because he lived it out himself as well. It's very different when a person speaks and says, hey, look, you shouldn't be doing that, but they themselves are doing it. Even the beastie boys know this, you know? When, when, when in the song popular back in my day, in the 80s, you got to fight for your right to party. And, and the, 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 the son is saying, you know, that God, uh, the, my dad caught me smoking and he said, no way, that hypocrite smokes two packs a day. So here's a father saying, don't do this. And the son's like, well, you're doing it. So maybe I can obey your authority. You're going to force me to do it. But there's abject hypocrisy in that statement. Even the beastie boys know that. That's wrong. On a scale of influence, we're all leaders, but he ranks high. And we'll see that he has incredible integrity too. But just to kind of call through the, the overall message, just, just two, two main things to draw from the, from the text today in terms of his leadership style and, and things that we can learn from as well. And it, it's simply this. The first is in verses 1 through 13, he is encouraging as a leader for us, all of us, but especially the people of his day, to consider the other. And we'll unpack that a little bit. And the second thing he does is he leads by example. So when I say leadership lessons for everyone, I'm saying in your spheres of influence, how are you considering the other? And typically the other meaning somebody you have power or influence over. And then also how are you leading by example? Consider how your actions individually, collectively affect others as well. And make that consideration a shaping influence in how you think and how you behave. I'll just give a quick example on, on consider the other. School's out. Summer is ahead of you. Some of you may be going to new schools. Maybe you're transitioning to a new school. Um, that's a hard thing to do. If you're somebody who's receiving new students, what would it look like if you were considering what that experience is like for that person? I mean, it seems, seems simplistic, and we're going automatically to application through thousands of years. But if the concept is consider the other, what would you want somebody to do if you were a new student? I mean, I would think at least some, you know, a smile, uh, you know, do you need help getting to a class? I don't know. And many of us don't have the capacity to get outside ourselves to do something like that. But the gospel, as we'll see, urges us to do that. If we want to really be citizens of God's kingdom and live it out with integrity, that's the kind of mentality we're invited to have, as we'll see. And, and it seems to me, as you look at this text, 
without those words being there, that Nehemiah is leveraging his authority to enter into that reality and say, how are your actions affecting others? You need to consider them. It, you know, it starts in verses 1 through 5. Three problems are brought to Nehemiah. The first problem is that there are really large families who've been part of this building project, and they just don't have food. You know, that, that we were talking about the Afghan families. A lot of them were large. You know, we're looking for housing for two people. Housing is expensive. What if they have 10 kids? And then there are housing laws that dictate how many you can put in a certain room. Well, these people were in a similar situation. They have big families. There's no food on the table. They're running out. And Nehemiah and others are saying, let's build this wall. And it's exciting. But if you can't eat, are you thinking about the wall? Especially if your kids don't have any food. And second problem they bring in verses 1 through 5, property has been mortgaged in order to get grain. Apparently there's a famine too. So how are you going to get food? Well, it costs money. We don't have money. What we'll do is we'll give you ownership of our property in exchange for some food. So the people who had a lot were doing that. And they're, they're, they're owning more. And other families are, are, are in debt. And third, money is being borrowed not only to pay back those countrymen, but the Persian taxes. Now, Drew was talking last week about the policy in Persia, letting people come into their uh, into their culture and the tension between assimilating on the one hand and, and being distinctive on the other, and, and that was a lot of what he talked about. And so Persia, in a sense, was good if they took you over because they were pretty lax on their cultural policies, but not on taxes. Some scholars say they would charge up to 50% in taxes. So when you think about your frustration with tax taxation, back here, it's 50% of what you earn is going to the government. And they couldn't do that. They're just running out of money. And it, it gets so bad, as we see in verse 5, we see, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So, not only are they leveraging their fields, but when they're out of that, there's no more. They, somebody says, well, then give us your kids. They'll be indentured servants like slaves, and they'll work off your debt. And it's a little bit hard to get excited about a building project, isn't it, when this is happening on the side. And that's what they bring to Nehemiah. They're real problems, Real struggles. We can't get food on the table. We don't any of, own any of our property anymore. And we're in debt to our brothers and to others to the extent that we're indenturing our kids. No wonder they feel powerless. They can't change their situation. It's not like they can work a double shift. It's, it's not like there's a new revenue stream out there. It's not like they can overthrow the Persian government with the snap of their fingers. They're, this is desperation. There's hope and solidarity and promise in Nehemiah chapter 3, but now all this sin and sorrow and justice is present as well. How does Nehemiah res respond to this? The Sigma 6 leader that he is. Well, in verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I pondered them in my mind, and I was 
very angry. And then he accused the nobles and officials and told them to stop doing it, right? So his response was anger. He was mad. When he looked around and saw injustice, he didn't turn a blind eye to it. He, he labeled it. He saw it. He was willing to admit it. And he's going to do something about it. He's angry. Greed is evident. The rich are lining their pockets. There's bickering and infighting. Families are being torn apart. And it's a little ironic. In their effort to reestablish the glory days of Jerusalem and rebuild the wall as evidence that God's kingdom is among them in the physical rebuilding of those walls. The kingdom practices of kindness and generosity and self-sacrifice are being set aside. See, that gets us back to Matthew 5, where we were and through 7 before we were here. When Jesus says, you want to know what life in my kingdom is like? Here are the character qualities. This is, this is what I'm after. I'm after your heart. Not just buildings and temples and IRAs. And, but you're building treasures in heaven. What does it look like? Blessed are the poor in spirit and the meek. They're the ones that are inheriting the earth. And yet here, Nehemiah is saying, you're not living that out. He thinks about it a bit in his mind, and then he, well, he's pretty brave and pretty bold. He accuses the nobles and officials. He goes directly to the source of the individuals who are responsible for it and says, don't do that any longer. And, and clearly, he has some measure of authority, as we've said, where they're going to listen to it. So what he's done is say, how do I use the power and influence I have for the good and the glory of God? And that's how he's doing it. I know we're not in the similar positions as far as I know, but you do have those, right? And you do have that. And so it's a good grid for thinking through what do I do? It makes me think of you know, passages like Isaiah 58 where the people are fasting and praying and they're coming to worship on a Sunday, kind of like this. And they say, look, we're obeying your rules. We're not working on the Sabbath, but they've just hired other people to do the work while they get money in their pockets. So they can look good before God. We're obeying you. But they're really not, are they? And God says, the kind of fasting I want is to not do the stuff you're doing and to, to seek justice and to worship me with a heart that is pure, not with the kind of hypocrisy that I see in my people. And in fact, in, in the book of Zechariah, and I thought I had put this quote on there, but I don't think I do based on what I'm seeing now. In the book of, I'm going to go back then. In the book of Zechariah, which this is, of course, if you remember with Nehemiah, the exiles are returning. Zechariah is during the time of King Darius when Ezra had brought the first people back and started building the temple. Listen to what, what Zechariah says to them. And, and when he says this, he's looking back to a previous time and explaining why they were in exile and saying, be careful because you're doing exactly the same thing again. This is from, from Zechariah chapter 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. 
Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. I mean, Nehemiah looks around and he says, they're doing exactly the same things again, and he's angry. He's in good company here. And God, God is saying to those in power, those with influence, you're not showing mercy. You're, you're not showing compassion to one another. Those are the words of Zechariah. Show compassion to one another. In, uh, instead, what you're doing is oppressing all those who are in the other category. Consider the other. And they've got a lot of other categories there. Widow, orphan, foreign, poor. And what they do to them is refuse to listen, turn their backs, and not pay attention to what God's calling them to do. And their hearts like flint, like stone. This is exactly what Jesus was saying to the people of his day. You know, Isaiah 58, Zechariah 7, Nehemiah chapter 5, I would suggest, and certainly what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, is God's after our heart, which means our motive. What is your motive for doing what you're doing? If you have a right motive and God gets that aligned, then your actions will follow. You can do the right actions and not have the right motive, and God's deeply concerned about that. But here he's saying, their hearts are like flint. If you don't have a soft heart, a heart of concern for, in this case, the other, these people we put in other categories, well, you're in jeopardy of having this same thing. The Lord Almighty was very angry, leveraged against you and against me. The reality that Isaiah and Zechariah and Nehemiah have in view is this. God's kingdom is not manifest in rebuilt walls. Those are just pictures and images of a different kingdom. And that kingdom is manifest in administering justice, in showing mercy, in demonstrating compassion to one another, in considering the other. And if that's the starting point, obviously policy would be shaped with that in mind. But certainly here in this day, he says there's no room for exorbitant rates in verse 6. He says, I'm angry, and you guys are charging other people usury. It's not that you couldn't get into a, a process or saying, I'm going to lend you this, and here's an interest rate that you owe me back. It's usury is backbreaking, predatory loans, even among your own people. And that's not right. And there are lots of others to consider. I mean, obviously here, but even in our own lives, of course, but it should be a consideration. How is the other being affected? It should absolutely affect our approach to interpersonal relationships as well as things out there, things closer to home, both, and. And that's part of what's happening here. The people affected are neighbors. There's a next-door neighbor, fellow worshipers, maybe even family. And, and this concept of kind of considering the other is not just relegated here to Nehemiah 5. It's all throughout God's word. And I've put that quote up there from Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This isn't a verse used to destroy all the boundaries in your life and say, I'm going to give myself to others at the expense of my own family. But you shouldn't just be looking to your own interests. You ought to consider others as well. That's probably where most of us need to live. And the other, and this is what's so amazing when Christ arrives, is he bursts into the scene, and if we're in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. When I see my brother or sister in Christ, they're not the other. They are, they're, they're me. They're my family. We're in Christ, organically connected. That's the beauty of the gospel. It recategorizes those things. And now we're family. The, the other is us. And the access point to that is because when you think about it, for Christ, we are the other. We're the people who don't deserve this. And yet he goes into debt on our behalf before God in the moral courts assumes our sin. He became the other so that we don't have to be. So when Nehemiah, who, who's prefiguring so much of this as well in the person of Christ, comes to them and says, consider the other, he's doing that not only as somebody who's aware of what good leadership looks like and how the people of God ought to behave, but because he himself is leading by example. And in verse 14 through 19, we see this demonstration of how his capacity, not only to consider the other, isn't just words, it's also actions. He's doing it. I mean, this guy has tremendous integrity. In verse 14, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be governor, so apparently he's been given a role of governor. And with governor... From Artaxerxes come privileges. It's a position that he has, that he's been given. And some of what comes along with it is access to all kinds of stuff. Neither I nor brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. So he was put in this position of power. He has a, a, you know, a stipend that's been given him of food. And he easily and by his right of his position could be just consuming all that food. But he's not doing it. Why? Because he's looking around and he sees that people around him aren't getting it. He's not going to abuse what privilege he's been given in that respect because he knows other people aren't getting it. And I say integrity there because he's leading by example. He's a person of integrity. By contrast, he goes on to say, the governors before him ate the allotment of food plus... They taxed people for more. They got all that had come in, all this food, and then they start taxing people because they want more. So this could have easily been a sermon on gluttony, perhaps during that time as well. But instead we're looking at through Nehemiah's eyes. And he's appealing to them to stop doing it, but he's, he himself is not asking him to do something he, he is, isn't doing. That's a person of integrity. Just because my position, my resources mean I can do something doesn't mean that I should. And if I'm living with kind of this mentality of being a citizen of God's kingdom, it absolutely shapes the way that I use my resources. You know, C.S. Lewis, when he talks about giving, for example, he says, you know, you should probably be living on a level if there's somebody who's in the same job as you, same income. They're not a believer. They're not a follower of Christ. You are. 
Your giving ought to be such that there's something you have to sacrifice that this other person doesn't because you've been giving generously to the work of what God's kingdom is doing. So what kind of sacrifices are being made? This is real for Nehemiah. He could have eaten to his heart's content. I mean, this would be, frankly, difficult for me because I enjoy food. I like to eat, and I like to eat until I'm done eating, and then a little bit more. And I've learned to dial it back as I get older, and certain physical ramifications happen from the overeating that used to seem to be so easy to do. So that's a good thing. But if I'm serious about that too, I can ask the same question. What, what am I giving up? When we do faith promise, for example, one of, the, one of the things we've said, at least in the past, is maybe you give up Starbucks coffee one day a week, perhaps. Huge sacrifice, I know, for some people. What is that, seven bucks? I don't know what it costs. If you get something all frappuccino-y, frothy, just specialized, half this latte, calf thingy. And you give that up once, once, once a week. And that money's going to support, you know, the work of, of missions work. I mean, that seems kind of silly, but it is a sacrifice. You are being distinctive. And in doing that, you're not only considering the other, you're really leading by example. Even if nobody knows it, because certainly God does. And those monies do actually maybe allow somebody to buy coffee they couldn't have gotten otherwise. Who's laboring overseas. And that's what Nehemiah does. He lives with integrity. He sacrifices something for God. And Nehemiah, um, if you notice this, talks about motive. In, in verse 15, he says, out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Why, why isn't he doing this stuff? Because he respects God. His reverence for God, his concern with fearing God, which is something he called them out on earlier. You're not fearing God. You're caring more about yourself is what drives his actions. So what a reasonable question to ask. And I, I tell this, I know I've told, I tell this to my ninth grade students all the time. And, and I, you know, I'm, I wonder what is driving our behaviors. When you do something, are you saying, is this going to give honor to God? Am I respecting God in this activity? Is that a grid we're using to make our decisions? On every single level. And if it is, you're starting to walk like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Because that needs to be a first thing. Is this going to honor God? And you may come up with different answers, but that needs to be a grid. It should be. It is for Nehemiah. And he leads by example, not just in terms of his integrity. But look what he says in verse 17. 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came from the surrounding nations. He's laying it out for them. He's denying himself, but he's get, being generous and hospitable with other people. He could have said, this table is not, you know, for everybody else. Only for me. But he has an open table. According to verse 18, this is all coming from his own pockets. So what you have here is a guy who has integrity, and also, obviously, we see he has hospitality. People come around the table, and he's being generous. He's not even, he's using his own money to make sure these people feel like they're well cared for. I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't done. That's very inspiring. And frankly, it's disarming. I think when he comes to, it seems to me he's built some reputation up in the community as a good leader. 
And when he sees what's wrong, he hasn't been thinking, how does what I say maybe, maybe compromise my position of power and influence? That's not the question he's thinking about. He's like, this is offensive to God. I'm going to call it out. It's pretty brave. I mean, maybe they could have responded and said, we're not listening to you. We're not going to do anything else that you're saying. So, not only sacrificial, man of integrity, hospitality, generosity, he's brave. And that's inspiring and disarming. At least to me, it seems to be the case. When you walk in this way, you're going to be different, right? You're, going, you're not going to be the same. You should be slightly distinctive in some respects. Um, apparently, New City's preaching through Nehemiah as well. And my, my friend, Josh Rotana, who's the lead pastor down there, uh, I said, well, hey, what did you preach on? And he sent me his text, and uh, I culled through it. Nothing I've said is what he said, by the way. If you're wondering, am I reading just his manuscript? No, but I did pull something out of it right here that I thought, well, now that's pretty interesting. This is what Josh said. When I was living in the Netherlands, there was a professor from Miami University there doing a Fulbright scholarship teaching at Leiden University. So we had him over for dinner. I asked what he thought about Edwin Yamauchi, a scholar at Miami who was also a very well-known Christian. Is he still a professor there? I don't know. I, I, I know him from, from years ago, too. The professor said, well, he does really good scholarship. You can't dispute that. But we all kind of mock his Christianity. We tease about it behind his back. But on the other hand, he's the only guy in the department that any of us trust. We call him in to mediate all our disputes because he's the only one that we believe, who we believe is honest and fair. He looked at us, almost like he'd never thought of the irony of that before, and said, that's weird, isn't it? We all make fun of him, but he's the one guy we really don't want to leave the department. It might fall apart without him. And I thought, you know, that, that's, that's great leadership too. I mean, thinking back to even what Drew was saying, I mean, if you're going to walk in God's ways, you're going to be distinctive. You might be made fun of. But there's an attractiveness to it that's compelling, <laughs> so compelling that the very thing they're mocking is what they value. Somebody who's going to be fair. Somebody who will be honest. And they pursue him when, when the rubber hits the road. I think Nehemiah is similar in that respect. But of course, none of us is Nehemiah or Dr. Yamauchi. And yet we all have a calling to steward our own places of influence and power as well, whether it be a little bit or a lot. In other words, we're each leaders. We started there too, and this is how we'll end. We each have influence and power over someone. The question is, what will we do with it? Now here's the thing. Jesus also had influence and power. He was the Son of God. He had all the power, all the authority, and we know that. It's all given to him. How is he going to use that? You know, one of the temptations of Satan was, I'll give you all the things that you that, that you're, have a rightful ownership to without having to go through the cross. No suffering. That was a real temptation. Christ wouldn't do it. So what does Christ do with all the power and the influence that he has as the Son of God, as the agency of all creation, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and is to come, the one in whom, under whom all things owe their very existence and over whom he has power? How is he going to use his power and his influence? And we get that in the passage extended from Philippians 2 that we read earlier. Your attitude 
should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. See, this is a lot like Nehemiah, isn't it? He says, hey, stop doing what you were doing. Consider the other. And then Nehemiah actually does it himself. And Jesus says, well, Paul's saying your attitude should be the same as that of Christ. Because he's not asking you to do anything he hasn't himself done. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So there's Christ, who we're called to follow in his kingdom, leading by example, in the ultimate act of considering the other. That gives us the, 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 the inspiration, certainly, and the joy that comes from knowing that we have a Savior who's already done it. And as much as we fail in our leadership and don't consider the other and don't lead by example, Christ died for that because he was the one who did it perfectly. He took on the nature of a servant, humbled himself, became obedient to death, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above all name, way above the name of Nehemiah, Zechariah, or the best leader in your life. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, I pray <coughs> for my own heart that it would not be like Flint. But for everybody here who doesn't believe that they actually affect others, I pray that you would expose that lie. Everybody here does, no matter what age. But more than that, for those of us who want to walk in your ways, we pray that this would be at the forefront of our consideration moving forward. The other. Leading by example. And thank you that Christ has done that as well, as we've already noted. Thanks that he, he was the one who sacrificed everything so that we could know what it's like not to be the other anymore, but to be included among God's family so that we can be brothers and sisters and we pray the force and the weight of that would compel us as we leave to think about considering the other and leading by example in the week, months, and the remainder of our lives that are ahead of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take